Father, thank you for letting us reach this important milestone in your study in the book of Judges. We always want to end things that we begin, Father. It makes us feel like we've accomplished something. It's a sense of purpose. And uh, Father, I know that's a part of how we come to the end of a book, but I also know, Father, that some of that is fleshly, that we are congratulating ourselves on a work that, in truth, we did nothing to accomplish. Father, you orchestrated the events of long ago to produce the stories that then you initiated the writing of through men that you called to write. And then you delivered this word through the years that followed in the hands of faithful men and women, and you have put it in front of us today, again, by your will and according to your spirit. And even as I endeavor to teach it, Father, I'm mindful that this teacher in this room is not me, but it is your spirit. So, Father, as we finish a book, we really have no choice but to marvel at how you brought about so many things to make possible this opportunity for us today to say that we have read and hopefully come to some degree of understanding of what you want for us to know in this book, Father. Thank you. Thank you for that faithfulness, Father. And Father, I also thank you that we have in this room men and women who have endured sound doctrine. You called Paul to use that word because enduring is exactly what's required sometimes, Father. And this text is perhaps one of those examples in which we've had to endure the stories of men and women who've done terrible things in their day. We've had to endure watching how the nation that you created walked away from you. We've had to endure the atrocities. We've had to endure the sadness. And, Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts by our endurance that you would give us examples we ought not to follow, that you have given us a challenge, Father, to do better and to think differently and to understand even in the midst of disobedience you remain faithful so that on our worst days we would have reason to be encouraged. Thank you, Father, for this book. Now teach us the end, Father, as well as you've taught us all the rest. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So here we are. We're coming to the end of the book of Judges. Today we're going to study, as I said, the final chapter, chapter 21. This is a chapter that concludes the story of the Benjamite civil war within Israel. And that is the second of two stories that conclude the book of Judges. And as such, they summarize the entire time of Judges. The writer wanted to capture the spirit of rebellion and ignorance that dominated during this time in the period of Israel's history. So that writer selected these two stories because the events in these stories, which took place at various points during the 300 years of Judges, really come to represent the entire time. I've called them poster children for the time of Judges, and I think that's what they are. They represent better than any other events, apparently, what a time in which people who are doing what is right in their own eyes looks like. My guess is the writer must have expected that when he retold these stories at the end of the book, that his readers, you and I, would shake our heads in disbelief and would be in disgust at the anarchy that is apparent in the nation of Israel. Even more, these stories demonstrate just how depraved and wicked and self-deceived the human heart is when that person goes away from the commandments of God, goes away from the walk with the Spirit. Friends, if you depart from God, you have no clue just how bad you can be. That's what we're learning in these two accounts. Now, the second account, which is the one we're finishing today, it began back in chapter 19, as you know, and it was telling the story of how the tribes of Israel entered into a civil war with one another over a single incident that involved an Ephraimite man 
and his concubine. And certainly I don't need to retell that. If you haven't heard that story, I encourage you to go back and listen to the study online and catch up. But we've heard it enough, I think, in here. And after that event, the 12 tribes of Israel decided to attack the 13th tribe of Benjamin in retribution for Benjamin's atrocity in the city of Gilbeah. And those 12 tribes were so hell-bent, and I use that term technically, they were so hell-bent on revenge that they were willing to put one of the tribes of God's people to an end. And they very nearly succeeded in that effort. After two setbacks in battle, the Lord granted the tribes a victory against the Benjamites. And as we saw last week, in that victory, the tribes went far beyond what was proper or necessary in prosecuting the battle. They chased down as many Benjamites as they could find among all the cities of the tribe. And as a result, they leave only 600 men in the tribe of Benjamin alive after they attack. These 600 men we heard last week, they became refugees hiding in the mountains. And so now at the beginning of chapter 21, the situation we're looking at is the fate of the, an entire tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, is now hanging on the future of these 600 men. They are putting their own existence at risk. And it's clear by what they've done here that they have no appreciation for the purpose of Israel in God's plan for all nations. Because remember, friends, the Benjamites were not just another group of people living in the land. They were one-thirteenth of a nation that God created to save humanity from sin. Israel, the Bible calls Israel the wife of Jehovah. And through Israel, the Lord is going to bring the prophets, He's going to bring the covenants, He's going to bring the temple, He's going to ultimately bring the Messiah Himself, which is why Jesus, when He spoke to the woman at the well in John 4, said that salvation is of the Jews. It is going beyond just the Jewish people, obviously, but it began with them. And yet, here you find the people of Israel preparing to destroy one another, beginning with the tribe of Benjamin. So, if these people had understood how important their nation was to the plan of God, I have to believe they never would have acted this way. But they have only eyes for earthly concerns. They are doing, as we know, what is right in their own eyes, which is to say they are doing sinful things. Because, friends, what seems right in the eyes of evil men is, by definition, sin. So interestingly, this moment that we're now facing, the moment in which Benjamin is at risk of disappearing, it was actually foreshadowed prophetically in the book of Genesis, way back in the story of Jacob. You remember after Joseph's reported death, the father of the tribes, Jacob, had become very attached to Benjamin because if he lost Joseph, now he wasn't going to give up his favored son of Benjamin. And there comes that moment when the sons have traveled into Egypt and they've been told by the Pharaoh's assistant, Joseph, that they have to bring Benjamin back with them. Remember, they go back to Jacob and they say, Dad, uh, we have to take Benjamin with us into Egypt. Jacob wouldn't let Benjamin go at first. Remember why? Because he didn't trust the other sons to protect Benjamin's life. Judah, if you remember, had to step forward to that is to go up first, like we've seen in this story, in order to guarantee Benjamin's life against that fate. So now you see that Jacob's fears for Benjamin were actually prophetic in the sense that his brothers are indeed seeking his destruction now many generations later. So anyway, we enter our final chapter now. So now the question we have to answer that the scripture is going to answer for us today is what will this disobedient, this evil people do now in the face of their self-induced disaster? As they come to recognize their own situation, what are they going to do about it? And for that matter, how is God going to ensure the continuation of his people while holding Israel accountable. And as usual, 
What the people are going to do in response to what they've done wrong so far, what do you think? What do you think they're going to do now? They're going to just put more sin on top of the sin that brought them into this situation. They're going to propose solutions that only further the anarchy that they've created. And I need to warn you, the narration in chapter 21 is going to approach these circumstances somewhat dispassionately. In other words, it would be easy for us to conclude, if we weren't more savvy, that the Lord isn't you know, particularly bothered by these circumstances, because the narration doesn't seem to take a position on them. But it's like failing to notice someone's dry sense of humor. You know, the joke is delivered with a straight face, so at first you're not sure if they're joking or not, right? You have to read the text like that here. There's an implicit condemnation of what's going on, and you'll see it before we're done today. But it doesn't come out in the way you might expect. It's more like dry humor. You need to read between the lines. So, in what you're going to read now, God allows what happens to happen. And He does so merely to allow these people to serve as a negative example for all history, so that you and I can clearly see the impact of what it's like to live in rebellion to God and to His Word. Thankfully, though, the Lord has a plan to correct the problem, and that solution is going to be presented as the final story in the period of Judges. The solution to everything we're seeing is another story. It just so happens it's not in the book of Judges, as you know. It's the story of Ruth, written by the same author during the same period of history, concerning the same group of Israel, but it's the antidote to everything that we've been studying in the book of Judges. So next week we will begin the book of Ruth to put a capstone on this and and I hope to take some of the, the negativity that we've been given through this book now for so long and cathartically push it aside and have a, a story we can end with that shows that God is still on the throne. So let's enter this final sad episode of the book. Let's pay attention to the mistakes these people just pile upon themselves. And it will begin with the men of Israel acting like someone who awakens from a drinking binge to discover all the regrettable things they did while they were drunk. Suddenly, the people of Israel are faced with this urgent need to save the very group of men that they were working so hard to destroy just a short time earlier. Verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mitzvah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they say, Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? It came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the son of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord of Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. You see the dry humor? We'll piece it out here. You'll see it. So, as I said, the people awaken to the reality of a tribe on the brink of extinction and they begin to wonder about what to do with this. Now, actually, 600 men seems to be enough to repopulate the tribe. It's not as though there's only one guy left. Remember, Noah and his family were enough to repopulate the whole earth. So, if you're wondering why 600 men would be such a dire calamity, yes, it's small, but it's not impossibly small. Ordinarily, 600 would be enough, but the people of Israel dug this hole even deeper. (laughs) Because in verses 1 through 6, we just learned that the sin of Israel went further than just murdering all the Benjamite men that they could get their hands on. It appears that sometime during the events of chapter 20, when the fight was going on, or right beforehand, 
The men of Israel made every tribe swear an oath, it says. And here's what the oath was. It was a wife oath, to give it a name. It was a promise to never again give their daughters into marriage to a Benjamite. Now that was at the heat of the moment, right? At the beginning of the battle, they're getting ready to go kill all these guys and they just want to add insult to injury. So they say, by the way, we're not going to let them have any of our wives either. Now, all the Benjamite women are dead. When they went after the cities, they didn't spare anyone. So there are literally no Benjamite women left on earth. The only people in the tribe of Benjamin that still exist are these 600 men. That's how thorough the atrocity was. But as the people of Israel contemplate the plight of those 600, they suddenly realize, oh yeah, we made that oath. We promised we'd never let them have a wife. Now they're under obligation to deny those 600 Benjamites the chance to marry and procreate. So that's why they're saying this tribe is destined to go extinct. Now, the oath was a real barrier. You and I might sit here saying, well, they could just change their mind, right? Well, that thinking reflects what we do today. That's reflective of the fact that no one keeps their word anymore. An oath was a solemn thing in this time, a commitment that was binding until death. If a man should break his oath, the rest of Israel, his brothers, were bound to execute him on that basis. Men believed that if an oath was made before God and then broken, God himself would bring vengeance. So no one was going to be the first person to test that oath. You know, no one was going to be the first guy to say, I'll break it if, if you will. You know, there was no such likelihood. And it gets worse, friends. In verse 5, we learn that the tribes took a second oath, it says. That oath was to kill a town or village in Israel if it refused to contribute soldiers to that battle against Benjamin. So what they did was they sent out a word saying, we need troops for this battle, and if anyone doesn't contribute, we, those who are in the battle, have taken an oath to hunt you down. So your incentive was to participate at the penalty of death if you didn't. So look at the chain of events here. They took an oath that compelled all Israel to participate in the war, and then all of those who came and participated in the war took an oath saying, we'll never give our wives to Benjamin. So they've kind of backed themselves into this corner. There's no one, it appears, no one in the nation who wasn't there, and all who were there said they won't give any women. And even if there were to find somebody in the nation, some city somewhere that didn't participate, well, they are under oath to kill them all. (laughs) They can't let them live to marry. The Benjamites. You see, they've created this conundrum. So where is the Benjamite going to go to find a wife? So they realize in verse 6 that they're between a rock and a hard place. They say, the tribe's going to go extinct. Look what happened. The only hope they have has been taken away by their own mouth. This situation, by the way, illustrates perfectly why Jesus says in the New Testament that we should not take oaths that bind us before God. The reason is because you can't be sure what God will do in the future. And you can't control the future. So how can you be sure that your own interests will be well served by your commitment? I mean, it might make perfect sense in the moment. God, I promise I will do this. But if God's got a plan in history that differs from your expectations, you could end up at a point in time somewhere down the road where now keeping that oath actually hurts you. But the problem is you're going to have to keep it according to God. Israel was now committed by his own word to do something contrary to its own best interests. Yet, no matter how the circumstances transpire, God expects us to keep our oaths. That's what Scripture says. Which is why Jesus says, a better approach 
to convincing people that you're going to do what you say. Instead of taking an oath to convince them, how about just make your yes be yes and your no be no? Then you're not on the hook to stick to something that makes no sense at some point in the future, but in your general faithfulness to your word, you'll become known as someone who does what they say, and that will be your testimony. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make oaths. Now these people didn't do that, as you see. They acted rashly, they acted sinfully in making vows against their brothers. And yet, and if you want to see the depths of their sin and their own self-deception, notice, friends, they don't see their predicament the way they should. Notice that as the people weep and lament in verse 3, who do they blame? Right? Who's the person at fault? They blame the Lord here for the situation. They ask God, how could you allow this to happen? As if it was his idea to extinguish one of the tribes of Israel that he created. Now, we should also acknowledge here the Lord didn't prevent it from happening, though he could have. But that doesn't mean it's his fault, friends. He could have prevented the fall of Adam in the garden, but that doesn't mean that when the fall took place it was his fault. It just means that God accommodated it into a plan he had for good. And the same is true here. These people are the ones who conspired to create the situation that is now at hand. It is their sin, not God's. God has a plan to accommodate it and it will get addressed. But that doesn't mean God's at fault for allowing it. These people are standing in this situation because they are living without regard for the Lord or for His law. The law would have prevented doing what they did. The law outlawed retribution within the tribes of Israel. But that law made no difference in their action. They decided to do what they felt was right in their own eyes. In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord instructs the nation to extinguish all the people of Canaan upon entering the land and not to marry the women of Canaan lest they become entangled in idol worship. Look what these people did. They literally did the opposite, which is what sin often calls us to do, right? They extinguished their own people, leaving the Benjamites with really no choice but to marry Canaanite women, or so it would appear. In all that we've studied in this book, in all the tragedy, all the depravity, all the arrogance, this story is really the icing on the cake. I can see now why the writer decided this story amongst all of what he probably could have told you about those times. This is the one he wants to leave you with. The people of God are literally doing the work of the enemy for him. They are murdering thousands of their own in their land, which I assure you the enemy would love to have done. They are preparing to uh, essentially force one tribe to intermarry with the very people that are under God's curse, the Canaanites. And I have to imagine the enemy and his demons were celebrating in this day as he watches all of this unfold. He must have been giddy at the prospect of watching Israel destroy itself from within. He has to just kind of sit back and say, well, I guess this work's going to be easier than I thought. Right? But we know the Lord's not going to allow his people to come to their end. So the rest of this chapter now describes... What will, I promise you, what will be a bizarre set of solutions that these people come up with in trying to rectify their own sin and get around all the rules that they've created for themselves. As you read what follows, I want you to take note that this solution does not come from God. It comes from this very same group that created the problem in the first place. And, by the way, it comes in the same way. That is, men doing what is right in their own eyes. It goes in two parts. Here's the first part of the solution, verse 7. They ask, what shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any daughters in marriage? And they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the land of Mitzpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. 
And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who is lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they have kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. Yet there were not enough for them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. All right, so you see how the solution begins? It doesn't begin with a word from the Lord. It doesn't begin with them going to a judge. It doesn't begin with them going to a prophet. It doesn't begin with them beseeching the Lord for a solution. Where does it begin in verse 7? The people. The same people. The same sinful people. They ask, what do we do to solve this problem? More specifically, they say, how can we get around our own oath? That's really what they're searching for. They want to violate the spirit of the oath while appearing to keep the letter of the law. Do you see that in their hearts? People in general, and, and I would say especially the Jewish people, have always been experts at this sort of thing. And the reason I say the Jewish people is because the New Testament is so careful at describing how Pharisees, scribes, and the like were always on the lookout for ways to avoid their own rules and in so doing circumvent their law, but yet do it in such a way that they don't appear to be violating the law. That's what Jesus meant when he says, you tie up all these rules and, and make heavy burdens that you lay on the shoulders of other people that you're not willing to even lift a finger. You know, his point was, you're hypocrites at the core. Sinful men have always wanted this. They've always wanted credit for piety without actually denying themselves the pleasures of sin. You know, you want to do it all and be it all that you really want to be and do, but when it comes to appearances, I want to make sure that everyone can look at me and say I'm just the perfect guy. We want to be righteous, but we only want to be righteous in the eyes of men, not in the eyes of God. That's an instinct in all of us. Now, I'm not saying we all get into it, certainly not equally, but it's always there. It's a part of the flesh nature of humanity. And that's what you see happening in this case. These people seek for a solution to their dilemma. And as they seek, they find hope in verse 8. Because they learn that there is a village in Israel that actually did not heed the call to join the battle. Remember we said that the only people who took the wife oath were the people who were in this battle. And this town apparently neglected the call and did not join. Now the problem then, of course, is they are under the oath of the others to be killed because they didn't join the battle. So that's the dilemma. Now, the town Jabesh Gilead is located on the east side of the Jordan River, really on the very edge of Jewish settlement in the land. So it's kind of on the outskirts. And the people of Israel are supposedly to go destroy all of these people because they had an oath amongst themselves to do so. And yet, this one group of people appears to be a source for wives, for Benjamin. So how are they going to get around that? How are they going to get around their own restriction? Well, simple. They just ignore it, or at least part of it. They select, it says, 12,000 people, 12,000 warriors to do the deed, to go destroy the town. More vengeance on top of vengeance, murder on top of murder, sin on top of sin. And the final sin here is their sin of disobeying their own oath. They determine that they are going to leave any virgin women, those that are eligible for marriage, in other words, untouched so that they can be taken as wives for the Benjamites. The people have, by the way, have no basis for doing this. I mean, by the rules of what an oath requires. This distinction, hey, we're going to kill them like we said, only leave the virgins. 
There's no basis for that distinction. They didn't make an oath that said that. They put the city under the ban, meaning it was going to be destroyed entirely. But because they're doing what is right in their own eyes, what does that mean? Well, it means I can make up the rules as I go. <laughs> you know, the rules used to be this, but we can do it differently. Let's do it differently. And then by killing all the men, all the children, all the married women, they feel justified that at least they, you know, they took out the required amount of vengeance, and then we'll just save the virgins because that solves another problem for us. So they wipe out the town. They collect the virgins. But then they realize there's only 400. We got 600 men, but I only found 400 virgins. Now, those numbers are not approximate. And you guys know this enough from studying with me throughout the books we've studied, right? Numbers don't pop in here by approximation. God is very precise in everything he says. There was literally only 400, and there was literally 600 men, not approximately. So the roundness of the number and the specific number draws our attention to it. And that's intentional. God wants you to pay attention to it. The number four in Scripture symbolizes the fallen earth. That's why in the earth itself you see the four corners of the earth is a phrase we use. The four winds of the earth. The compass has four directions. That reinforces for us that God has implanted into the structure of Scripture and into the physics of the world even the idea of four being associated with the fallen earth. And the number two in Scripture is classically a symbol of division. You see it used as division. You know, Jacob, Esau, Isaac, uh, and uh, Ishmael. These ideas of two being divided by God. Cain and Abel. So two is a number that represents dividing something. So what God has suggested by 200 and 400, for example, in the case of 400, God is limiting Israel to obtaining 400 women through their scheme as a commentary on their sin. He's saying that the schemes of men will always lead to a fall in keeping with the ways of the world. You're living according to the ways of the world, you're going to reap what the world gives you, which is incomplete, uh, lack of satisfaction, a failure at the end of the day. And in this case, it's easy to see how their scheming has produced nothing but just really a downward spiral of calamity. I mean, they're murdering more people and disobeying their own oath and getting less than they needed at the end. Such is the world's wisdom, friends. That's exactly what happens in the world. You feel it in your everyday life, by the way. I don't need to lecture on this very long, but you feel it, right? When you seek for what the world offers, it never quite satisfies. It usually results in more trouble. You usually have to find yourself compromising in something in your life that you wish you didn't have to do, but it was necessary to get what you wanted, and it all sort of didn't come out the way you thought it would in the end, and you can't figure out why it's just not working. It's four. It's the world. God's commenting on their efforts with that number. And then the number two the 200 remaining that are still needed, it reminds us that the sins of these people are dividing them from God and from each other. They're not walking in unity as a nation, and they are certainly not walking in fellowship with the God who brought them out of Egypt and put them into this land. That's a fundamental principle of sin. It divides us. That's the nature of the problem. Sin divides you from one another in the body, amongst the believers, and across humanity it breaks fellowship with God. Our faith in Christ has saved us from the eternal judgment that our sin deserves because he took the penalty of sin for us on the cross. But nonetheless, friends, a believer's sin, that is, someone who is saved by faith but yet continues to live in their flesh, that will produce negative consequences while we await our glorification, which includes distancing us from other believers. You, you all know this, right? That member of the body who decides they're just going to live their sinful fleshly life despite the fact that Christ has died on their behalf, they just drift away from the rest of us. You know, we're all pursuing Christ, to some degree we're working on it. That one who loses interest in the pursuit, they just seem to drift away. We've felt it, we've seen it, maybe some of us have done it. 
And then, of course, we distance ourselves from God, not eternally, because Christ pays that penalty for eternity. And one day we'll be glorified. But in the meantime, we're living outside the will of God. And I have found from my own experience, and certainly it's reflected in Scripture, that when you choose to sin and you move, you divide away from the fellowship you have with God in Christ, though you are still a child of God by faith, what will happen is your sin gets stronger and your flesh starts to take over and it becomes a downward spiral that's really hard to back out of. You get to the point in which your sin makes your flesh so strong that you're not in a position anymore to turn back and to seek for fellowship again. Your salvation's not at risk, but your life may very well end in a poor testimony. Your life will reflect what Paul means when he says shipwrecked faith. A faith, yes, but one that leaves you on the rocks, at least in this earth. Your soul being saved in the end. So as the tribes lament their inadequate supply of procured virgins here, What do they do in verse 15 again? They blame God. Once again, they say, God, why did you let us down again? How interesting that they never sought God's counsel before they even acted. Isn't that interesting? They never thought to talk to Him before, only after. And they're so quick to blame Him when things don't go their way. That shows you how stubborn and how ignorant they've become. So now, that's plan one. So plan one was find somewhere that has not given an oath and will kill most of them and will save the virgins. That was plan one. Well, that didn't work well enough. They still have some men who need wives. So now plan two, verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Well, behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Lebanon. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, Give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The sons of Benjamin did so, and took wives according to their number from those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. If you want to see just how self-deceived the human heart is when it's intent on sinning at all costs, this is a good example. This is one you can mark in your Bible and maybe use again. Maybe when you have a child who's just you know, working really hard to get around the rules but act like they're keeping them, here's a good example to take them to and say, this is what it looks like when you do what you do. So here's what the elders of the tribe of Israel come up with. And it's, I will have to give them credit for ingenuity. They say, what are we going to do to find these extra wives? Because we've killed all the ones in Benjamin, it says. And then in verse 17, they declare that Benjamin must not be allowed to die out. Now, I love this little bit of piety, by the way, just in passing here. Why are there no women left in Benjamin? Oh, yeah, that's right, because you killed them all. 
But it sounds like in verse 17, these guys are like the Red Cross, you know, coming to the aid of unfortunate victims of some natural disaster. You know, we can't let this go on. We have to save them. Well, you might have thought of that before you killed them all. You see the self-deception there, right? Their perspective on self is so colored by their determination to be something that they are not truly willing to be. They were the perpetrators of the very disaster that they're now trying to mitigate. And the plan that they devised this time is another attempt to circumvent their ill-conceived oath. And here's what they're trying to get around this time. No man in Israel can give his daughter to Benjamin. Remember, that was the oath. We all said, we promise no women will be given. Okay. If you violate that oath, the father would be killed. Well, no guy, as I said, is going to be the first to test that. And that's the problem. But the elders come up with this thought. They said, what if, what if the daughter is taken involuntarily? The father didn't break the oath. They just lost their daughter. That's it. We just need to steal the daughters and then no one's guilty of breaking the oath. Okay, wait a minute. At the end of the day, Israel is still giving daughters to these men, right? I mean, the spirit of the oath is no women will marry them. We're still allowing that to happen. You can see this is the same kind of thinking that said, if I can't boil a goat in its mother's milk, I can't eat a cheeseburger. It's the extrapolation of the idea to the point of absurdity so that I can still kind of do what I want or pretend to not do what I want in these bizarre methods. That's why I say the Jewish people have always been really good at this because they've had a law for centuries and they've been working really hard to avoid it most of that time. So they've gotten good at it. All right, so here's the plan. If the father is involuntarily giving up his daughter, we can save them from death and we still end up with the daughters. And that becomes the solution. They instruct the 200 Benjamite men who still need wives to hide in fields outside the town of Shiloh before an upcoming festival that is known to happen in this town. And in that festival, young daughters of the town would come out into the field to participate in festival dances as a part of a custom. So the Benjamites be hiding in the vineyards, it says. They see these women. Each guy is supposed to pick out his wife and literally kidnap her and take her back to his home and forcibly make her his wife. And the elders devise this plan unbeknownst to the fathers of the daughters in Shiloh. They don't know it's coming. And they can't know, otherwise the oath would be a problem, right? So it's got to be a secret. And they say in this little passage that they know what's going to happen. I mean, they understand what's going to follow. They know that the fathers and brothers of these women are going to be outraged, as they should be, about what's happened. And they're going to come to the elders and they're going to demand justice. Now remember, if you're honestly keeping the oath you would have to then apply justice because the oath requires it, right? But no, they're not going to worry about it at that point. He says instead in verse 22, they're going to respond to the men of this town by saying, you know, you should be happy that we took your daughters this way. Marriages were supposed to be arranged, properly so, with permission given by the father or brother, with a dowry paid to the family in exchange for the value of that daughter, and certainly not against their will. But they have the audacity to turn to the brothers and fathers and say, you know, you ought to be happy about what just took place. Because the reason for saying that is they said there were two other ways we could have done this. The other ways were we could have gone to war with you to take these wives and then we would have taken them and you would have died. Or we could have forced you to break your vow, in which case you would have been killed for breaking the vow. The way we've chosen to do it, kidnapping them in other words, at least you live, so you ought to be happy. You can see how twisted logic comes when you act according to the sin of your heart like this, right? This story, remember, this story started how? How did we get into chapter 19? The brutal rape of one woman, that concubine, because of the sin of the Benjamites. And now that moment 
has led to a remarkable and tragic chain of events that has culminated in producing an astounding amount of suffering and sin and injustice such that one rape of one illegitimate wife, a concubine being illegitimate, has resulted now in the rape of 600 illegitimate wives by the Benjamites who were left over. I mean, if that's not a better picture of how sin begets sin and how it magnifies, there's not a better one in the Bible. One sin led a bunch of people to do something in a sense of justice and retribution that only contributed to 600 more of the same. And a bunch of death in the meantime. And friends, need I remind us, what does the number six in Scripture mean? It's the number of fallen, sinful man. And this whole story is nothing but a picture of that. That's why this story is the capstone account for the time of Judges. On the surface, you know, it seems like, if you just looked at it without any insight, it seems like a bunch of men doing what's right to stop a depravity and to save the tribe of Israel. But the truth of it is something entirely different. This is a story of recklessness, of unrestrained men living without regard for God or His commands or His judges or His leaders. And in a contradictory nature of their existence, the writer wants you to understand that while they're all trying to do what's, quote, good in their own eyes, they can't amount to anything more than just a chain of sin. Notice in verse 24, we're told that the people return, it says, to their families, to their appointed place in the land, to their inheritance. If that phrase sounds a little familiar to your ear, it's because it's very similar to the end of the prior book in the Bible, that is the book of Joshua. After Joshua's done what he would do in conquering the land and it comes to the end of his life, we hear in Joshua 24, I'm just read three verses here. 24:26 it says, "And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be a witness against you so that you do not deny your God." Then Joshua dis- dismissed the people each to his inheritance. Now back in Joshua, He reminded the people, you know, you have to live according to the law you've just been given. Don't forget that. You can't go out living on your own. You've got to consider what God's law says. And then he sends them back to their inheritance, to their appointed place in the land, with a warning, don't deny the God who delivered you from slavery and put you in this inheritance. Don't take the gift of the inheritance without also acknowledging the God who put you here. Then you get one book later in our canon, about 300 years of time, And you find the people here, once again, saying, we're going to go back into our inheritance. Sounds very similar. And from outward appearances, maybe it looks exactly the same. As if nothing has changed in those 300 years. But it's just an illusion. And look at the final verse of Judges. The writer leaves us once more with this common refrain that I've used so often, the book uses so often, the theme of the book, really, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So from an earthly point of view, life in Israel may appear to be just like it was in the time of Joshua. Defeating bad guys, going back to our inheritance, following God. But spiritually, this nation is in crisis. It's at the risk of annihilation. It's a nation that needs a king, a nation that needs a savior. Literally, a nation that needs a new Joshua. Which, as you probably know, the word Joshua, Yeshua, is the name of Jesus. That's where we end this book with the nation literally on the brink of extinction, but for some scheming and more sin on top of sin, they would be gone. And if left to their own, I assure you, they would have disappeared. 
But because God has a purpose in their existence, it won't come to that. And now, as we said at this end of the book, you know, if the Bible ended here, how depressing would that be? But thankfully, there's another book. And that book that follows the book of Ruth is the one we'll study next week. And with that comes a story that is both beautiful, poignant, and meaningful. And as a teaser to get you interested in what's coming, not only does it complete the idea of God's rule in this period, that is to say it shows us how God is prepared to solve the problem of a people whose sin seems to have no limits, and that is through a Redeemer, but it's also a beautiful picture of the last days on earth, of the end times. The book of Ruth is a book of eschatology. In it is a beautiful picture layered alongside the pictures of Christ as Redeemer. There is another story that I have found is often overlooked and not understood by many Christians. So as we go through the book of Ruth, we will teach it first for the events that it says, you know, the simple events of a, of a man named Boaz and women of Naomi and Ruth and the like. But then we're also going to look at the pictures that are created in their life for the church and for Jesus and our Redeemer coming to us as the groom and we the bride. And then we're going to go a third level and we're going to look at the pictures that the book creates for how Jesus has a plan for the church and for Israel and for his return for both and for the events that lead up to his return. All of that is pictured in the events of that story as well. So if you like love stories, this is a book for you. If you want to feel better about the time of Judges, well, this is a book for you. And if you like talking about the end times and about apocalyptic things, well, then this is a book for you. So we'll start that next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for giving us the book of Judges. Thank you for your examples, both in the negative and in the positive. Thank you, Father, most of all for your faithfulness. It must be an encouragement, Father, to the believer who reads this book and remembers that despite all that Israel did, despite all the calamity, anarchy, sin, and disobedience, Father, you were always there. You remained faithful. You did not turn your back on this people. The very fact that the Bible moves forward from here and shows that you still were at work in that nation, Father, how reassuring is it to someone like us, who, to people like us, who one day may very, uh, very often uh, walk away from you that we may in our sin, Father, do what's right in our own eyes. And though it does not encourage us to do that, nor, nor does it excuse it, Father, at least, Father, we take comfort in knowing that when we, remain faith, when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And you've put yourself in us by your Spirit, and we're thankful for that, Father. Please um, give us courage and desire to serve you and to listen to you and to seek you and not to do the silly things, the, the dumb things we see in this book at times. But also, Father, encourage us so that we know, even in our worst days, you still love us. You've saved us by grace, not by works, and we can't undo what was given to us freely. And that you will consistently call us by your word to step forward again and to walk further. And we ask, Father, you'd always have that fresh in our hearts by the Spirit so that we'd always be encouraged to walk with you. Thank you, Lord. Bring us back and continue us in the study of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.